a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come and revel in wrong think. Got my friend Eric Peters on board today. Eric, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing good. Impeach Mayorkas. File another lawsuit. Wow. <laughs> there's no there's no uh, let up in, in all the fun activities going on around us. No, there isn't. And I've had a lot of fun this week as we talked about briefly off the air <clears throat> about my test driving of the, uh, new, the new Ford Lightning, which is the electric version of Ford's F-150 half-ton pickup truck. So... Okay, let's. Do you mind if we start with that? I know there's a lot of other current events sure. going on, but I, I know I was very interested when you mentioned you were going to get this vehicle to test. I, I've been following you faithfully and watching your articles come out on it. Give us the overall impression. Uh, you know, I mean, come on, EVs, woo! You know, um, mm-hmm. do you do you share the enthusiasm of <laughs> of the others out there pushing the EV well, over, over the Ford Lightning? You remember that old little asterisk uh, that you'd see underneath the published mileage? Uh, figures that window stickers used to come with, and it would say something like, your mileage may vary. Remember that one? Yeah. That's that's the take-home lesson here, in that the indicated range, uh, the range they tell you the thing will go versus what you actually get, uh, is considerably less. What I think is kind of going on, though, and we'll get into some of the nitty-gritty, but I think something interesting is happening, and I may be entirely wrong about this, but I find it interesting that Ford chose to send me and also some other people uh, who do what I do, the truck, uh, to evaluate and uh, people who are infamous for doing real-world testing. And I think it may be Ford's elliptical way of trying to get the truth out about the reality of living with one of these things because it's not favorable, uh, particularly wow. with regard to uh, you know towing capacity. One of the things that I did was to hook up a relatively light trailer. You know, This is a half-ton truck. It's rated to tow up to 10,000 pounds and uh, hooked up a, 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 a 6,000 or so pound trailer to this thing. And we started out with an indicated range of, I think it was 269 or almost 270 indicated miles, and we burned through that uh, down to 112 miles in just 57 miles of pulling. Wow. Yeah. Wow is right. It's essentially useless for towing unless you literally have all day to stop, uh, you know, because it takes, this is another thing, it takes considerably longer to, as they put it, fast charge one of these things than people have been led to believe, including myself. You know, I've repeated the, the line that you hear about, well, at a fast charger, you can recover 80% charge in 30 minutes. Actually, no. Uh, I fast charged it, and I hate using the word, um, a couple of times. One time, it took me an hour and 15 minutes to put 100 miles of range back into the thing. Oh, my and word. And it turns out... Dig- Yes, it turns out that you know that these fast chargers they vary in their capacity to put a fast charge into the thing. So you know, even if and even if in the best case scenario, you know, if you have to wait for a half hour every eighty miles while you're pulling a trailer. I mean, it turns what would have been uh, you know a six seven hour trip. Let's say you were going to go three or four hundred miles down the road uh, into a trip that takes several hours longer than that. And God only knows what would happen when you you know have to deal with that in a twenty degree on a 20-degree day where the air temperature uh, affects battery performance even more. 
Yeah, you know, I'm pretty neurotic about watching my gas tank, as in I never try to get below half a tank because I just mm-hmm. I want to make sure, you know, I've got enough fuel to get me where I'm going. It, it would drive me absolutely out of my mind. I'd be afraid to go, you know, a few miles from home in an electric vehicle, wondering, you know, am I going to have the range to get, you know, to the next charging station or to get back home? Yeah, it's a constant obsession. That's what I've had to deal with for the past week. And here's another one. And I just wrote about this and published an article about it this morning. Something else that people are not being told about is that if you park an electric vehicle and do not plug it in, you will lose range just parking. And the reason for that is that battery packs have to be maintained within a certain temperature range in order for them to to lead a reasonably long life. And so the vehicle has a cooling and heating system for the battery. And, of course, that's powered by electricity. So unless you plug the thing in, it's going to draw down power. Um, I found a pretty startling loss of power this morning. I parked the truck Sunday afternoon with 112 miles of range. Just been sitting in the driveway. haven't done anything with it since then. This morning I went out to check on it. It only has 94 miles of indicated range remaining. So it lost almost 20 miles of indicated range just sitting unplugged in the driveway. Holy cow. Now it's you... like having a pinhole leak in the gas tank, with the difference being that even if you have a pinhole leak in your gas tank, it's no big deal. Just you know, run down to the gas station and put some gas in it. Good luck running down to the, uh, well, I mean, how do you carry a five-gallon jug of electricity back to your, your, your electric vehicle? You know, it now means that I can't drive the thing today, basically, because for me, uh, I want to drive down to the gym after we get off the air and, you know, work out my frustrations about everything that's going on. Problem is, I barely have enough range to get there and back, and I'm not, I'm like you, I don't, I'm neurotic about it. I don't want to get stuck by the side of the road, but I don't have the time to charge the thing, so I'm just going to take my... 20-year-old gas truck that I don't have to think about it. You know, I can just drive it, and if I need to put gas in it, boom, I put gas in it, and I'm back on the road in a couple of minutes, no problem. I mean, look, I'm I'm not, uh, I don't, uh, I don't worship at the Church of Climate Change, but even yeah. if I, even if I did, this would give me serious doubts about uh, doing my part to save the planet by driving an electric vehicle. Well, and that whole thing is fatuous, too, in that uh, almost all of the electric uh, power that's generated to power these electric vehicles is powered is generated by burning hydrocarbon fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. That's a fact. So, uh, you know, when you're driving your electric vehicle, unless somehow you have a massive solar array at your house that's able to provide the juice necessary to keep one of these things going, or you're connected to a windmill farm some, somewhere, you're not doing your part to prevent carbon dioxide from being emitted. All that's happening is that it's being emitted somewhere else. Wow. Well, you, you uh, I mean, you, you've been the voice of reason as far as I'm concerned on, on electric vehicles for a long time. Um, this, to me, is just another nail in the coffin of uh, why I do not aspire to, to own one. And, and, and it also, it, it just, it, it reinforces, you know, why, why are the people in regulatory positions pushing so hard to get us into these? Well, I think, and you know, I know when I first started saying this several years ago, people probably thought that I was being a little bit hyperbolic, maybe even a little neurotic and paranoid. Um, but I would say that I think that these electric vehicles are the vehicle for getting most of us out of vehicles. In other words, they're being used to reduce personal mobility. They do not want most of us to have a privately owned car and to be able to drive it wherever we want to go, whenever we feel like going conveniently, easily, and inexpensively. They want to make driving a vehicle very expensive and difficult so that most people either can't or don't want to. And that will tend to encourage people to live closer to these urban hives 
where people are more readily under the control of the government and the corporations that seem to want to rule us. Wow. Well, I appreciate the fact that you got the chance to drive. Now, I have to ask, you know, in all fairness, does does the uh, Ford Lightning have some pretty amazing doodads as far as, you know, the accessories and features? Well, sure, it has some neat things. You know, for example, um, up in the front, meaning, you know, where the, the hood uh, the, and the engine that used to be under the hood would be, you've got this big storage compartment, and there are full, four 120-volt uh, outlets there, and there are another uh, couple of them in the bed, and you can upgrade those to be capable of powering high-draw things, you know, like chop saws, welders, and whatnot. And that's great, except, again, it's just catch-22, because if you use those those accessories, you're going to burn through electricity and reduce range. And, I mean, what's, there's nothing better than spending 10 or 11 hours at a job site working hard manual labor and then finding out that you can't go home because the truck won't get you there. Oof. Well, I guess uh, the uh, the Electric Vehicle Manufacturers Association probably aren't going to have you as their keynote speaker anytime soon. Well, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're finally trying to get the truth out elliptically. As I mentioned before, I think, you know, within the corporations, they dare not discuss this stuff, right, because of the repercussions that will befall them. But, you know, they can maybe use us as their uh, mouthpiece, if you will, to get the truth out, and they can wash their hands of it. So, well, I didn't say that. You know, it was just this guy who pointed it out. And if so, great. I'm happy to perform that service. And, and I'm not trying to disparage EVs because I don't like them, which I freely admit, I don't like them. Uh, I was very careful to simply point out the facts about this truck. And by the way, here's another interesting fact. Uh, I was reading through the owner's manual of the truck, and, you know, we hear a lot about fast charging, and the EV proponents will say, uh, you know, that eliminates the range anxiety because you can just fast charge it, right? We've all heard that. Well, right there in the Ford owner's manual, it says to avoid fast charging because that tends to hurt the long-term health of the battery. And the battery, of course, is the most expensive thing in an electric vehicle. And if you wear that thing down and have to replace it, you're looking at a catastrophic expense. I read somewhere that the cost to put a new battery in the F-150 Lightning is something like $30,000. Oh, wow. Now, right. I guess if, there, if, there's a, if there's a silver lining, though, I believe last time you and I talked, uh, did we not talk about how the uh, used car market, though, is likely to start to bottom out here next year? And so, you sure. know, when, when your battery goes bad, we'll, you know. The problem is we'll all be darning our socks and putting, you know, like snuffy sniff patches on our butts because we'll all be broke. <laughs> okay, I shouldn't laugh, but... Uh, I'm just trying. I'm trying to find the reference. I'm just trying to find the the bright uh, the bright silver lining here. We got to yep. take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk some current events with Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com. If you'd like to check out his website, I provide a link in my show notes. You can access those at thebrianheitshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, let's let's delve into some current events here. I, mm-hmm. I love to, to bounce some of these off of you, kind of get the voice of reason into the conversation here. Um, let's talk about the Twitter files. More files have yep. dropped. More developments have taken place. Give me your reaction to what we've learned since the last time we spoke. Well, I'm very gratified to see that Elon Musk is doing something useful. You know, I still don't trust the guy because of his rent-seeking and crony capitalist activities. That said, uh, he is doing a service with regard to Twitter. And the latest revelation is that apparently 
a year before the 2020 election, uh, Michelle Obama, wife of Barack Obama, um, contacted the higher ups at Twitter uh, and demanded that they ban the orange man from their platform, which they promptly did. And it's not, uh, you know, a, uh, a hypothetical she may have. They've actually published her actual text, her actual email in which she demands it. Wow. Ah, but we're supposed to ignore that, right? This is the big nothing burger. Everybody knew that was always going on. And besides, you know, it's no big deal. And Except, uh, well, we th- hear, go ahead. We, we hear about collusion from the left all the time. We've been hearing about it ever since the orange man went down the proverbial escalator back in 2015 or 16 or whenever it was. And again, I want to you know preface this by saying I'm not a partisan fan of the orange man. I'm just pointing out the duplicity, you know, the, the hypocrisy. It's, and it's just so blatant, so egregious, and so in your face of these leftists who, on the one hand, will confect uh, an assertion that the orange man is Putin's poodle, that he's dancing on the strings of the Russians. And on the other, we've got the actual objective fact of these leftists manipulating things like the public square, people's ability to communicate, suppressing important and relevant facts, like the way the, the New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop was squelched mm-hmm. just before the election. And somehow that's not collusion and that's not election interference. Yeah, it's it, it seems like the 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 coincidences all seem to run in one direction, and that is toward the Democrats. So, you know, heaven forbid that we, uh, you know, would, would question this kind of thing. But I guess, you know, if you do, you're going to be accused of perpetuating the big lie. Well, you know, people who aren't totally deluded and have had their mental apparatus destroyed by the last three years of keeping a face diaper on their on their mouth uh, uh, are able to discern this now and see through it, I think. And that's the one salutary uh, unintended consequence of all of this. The, the left is now out of the closet. You know, they made great hay for many years uh, having assumed the mantle of uh, pretended morality. You know, they were always the ones who took the high road. They were the ones who cared about free speech. They were the ones who cared about the common man, the working man, and all of this. And now they've been unmasked for what they are, which is a bunch of uh, almost psychopathic, power-lusting people who will do absolutely anything necessary to get and, and preserve political power. Yep, and uh, and it, it's tough, but uh, the, the media keeps, you know, holding them up. And, uh, you know, I, I could, I'm a pretty forgiving person. And, and even if somebody, you know, out of spite makes a mistake, I'm willing to be forgiving if they would acknowledge it and, you know, turn away from it. But mm-hmm. it seems like the media is determined, it's, as are many of the politicos, to just double down and, and further gaslight us and further insist that, no, 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 we did nothing wrong. It's all, it's all in your head. Does anybody still watch or listen to the media? Some do. You know, my my eighty eight year old mom does, but uh, yeah, I I think it's it's literally you know it's a dying breed that that still accesses that corporate media. Yeah, there still is a cohort that does. You know, I I filed one of my uh, episodic diaper reports the other day. Uh, We were at the at the grocery store walking around, and you know, most people were behaving normally and looking normally. But we saw uh, a man with his young son, and both of them were wearing the face diaper. And wow. you know, clearly, these are people who who watch a lot of CNBC. Yep. Well, I guess the best we can do is keep speaking truth, you know, and keep uh, keep putting it out there for for those who are watching. I, you know, this is the thing. I don't feel the need like we got to win everybody over to our side, you know, before this starts to matter. Um, we just need a minority of people who actually are willing to you know, commit to staying tethered to reality and, and not be swayed by guilt or by, you know, accusations that you're being intolerant by not believing mm-hmm. what I'm telling you. 
you know, we have to hew to the facts and the reason. There are people who are unreachable, unfortunately, and no matter uh, how persuasive your facts and reason, uh, facts and, and reason and logic may be, they can't be reached because they're relying on emotion. It's like attempting to, uh, to, to persuade a temper tantruming three-year-old by reasoning with them. You just can't, so you have to let them go. Uh, with regard to everybody else, though, I think the people, most people still are amenable to facts and reason. And so if we keep our head and keep to the facts and to reason, I think ultimately we'll prevail. It seems very difficult, um, but I do think we're making headway. I think so, too. And, you know, otherwise this would feel like a very chaotic you know, kind of uh, yeah. effort, you know, to, to keep uh, to keep trying to, to raise that awareness. And and I don't know, Eric, are, are we scaring people more than than we're doing good by by talking about some of the things that are going on? I have to ask myself. No, that. I don't think so. You know, maybe at first, but I think at this point people are cluing in. I think a metric of that is the fact that despite the, the, the government and the corporations, continuing to really push and hard sell the so-called vaccines that we know are not safe, do not immunize. Uh, uh, the uptake, as they put it, of the latest round of boosters is really low. They're having a really difficult time getting people to do it. Uh, and so that tells me that a lot of people have thought about it and thought, you know, I'm not doing this. And that says to me that we're beginning to penetrate and make headway. Yep. Do you, by the way, is, is Dr. Fauci ever going to retire or is he just, you know, playing that uh, that card until people stop paying attention to him? Oh, well, he'll play that card until he gets his new gig, probably as some kind of medical consultant. I wish I could do a better Fauci imitation <laughs> for CNN. That's where he's going to pop up. He's going to be one of these jabbering, talking heads that they'll that they'll keep on retainer to continue to peddle his lies, no doubt, uh, at a very high salary. Uh, I continue to hope, by the way that rather than this business of impeachment and hearings and all of these completely futile, meaningless gestures, that instead of that, we begin to see indictments and prosecutions of these people. I certainly hope so, because I, I think there's still, you know, there's a lot of danger of this continuing. Maybe you saw the video this last week of a police in New Zealand taking a child from its parents at the hospital, an infant yes. from its parents, uh, because the parents were like, mm -hmm. we do not want our child to, to have a transfusion with vaccinated blood. Now, my, my understanding yep. is the, the transfusion was done and it was done with unvaccinated blood, but not before yep. the family was traumatized and their child taken from them because, you know, the state right. knows what's best. That's right. That's absolutely right. And it's unconscionable that they do these things and they have got to be held account for it. Uh, you know, we think about uh, in our memories, all of those scenes of people being dragged out by their hair sometimes yep. for not wearing a mask uh, and, and being threatened in the most vicious way for being hesitant about taking these, these drugs that we know do not stop the spread of anything except sanity and common sense. We cannot forget that, at least not before people have been, been held accountable for it. So I'm I'm curious. Do you think there will be any accountability for uh, some of the? Uh, um, I, I guess I'll just call it the the manipulation of public opinion, the manipulation of uh, you know perceptions into and and during the last couple of elections on the part of social media. It's clear they were they were working with government officials and and candidates in, on the yep. Democratic side. Do you think we'll ever see accountability from that corner? Maybe so. You know, if if Elon Musk manages to turn Twitter around into a hugely profitable business. Money ultimately is what talks. And if Facebook and any of these other social media platforms begin to hemorrhage their audience because of what they've done, and on the other hand, they look at Twitter and see, wow, you know, Elon Musk's magic touch. He's making a ton of money by letting people speak freely. 
they may do it for the most cynical reasons of all, money. But so what? You know, if it serves to bring free speech back, I'm all for it. Here, here. Eric, we're uh, we're up against the clock here, but as always, mm-hmm. great to visit with you. I appreciate the fact that you're out there doing what you do. Uh, tell people where they can find your website. Sure, it's epautos.com. Very straightforward, or you know, just punch my name into any search engine, other than Google, which might suppress me. But <laughs> otherwise, I'm pretty easy to find. And and take the time to read the comments after his articles as well. You got some very uh, erudite uh, readers and people who have some informed points of view. I learn a lot both from your articles as well as the comments. Thanks again, my I friend. I do too. I really appreciate the people I've got. Thank you as always for having me on. All right, again, that's Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to GarageDoorProServices.com. This is especially for my listeners who live in southern Utah, particularly southwest Utah, St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. If you need garage door installation, service, or repair, talk to my friends at Garage Door Pro Services. You can call them at 435-525-2773. You can also go online to GarageDoorProServices.com and see what they're all about. I can tell you this, they really do know how to take care of their customers, and the proof that I would offer is check out their website, check out their reviews and what their customers are saying about them. They know how to go above and beyond and how to take care of their customers and provide absolutely outrageously good service. Again, that's garagedoorproservices.com. I know it seems like a full-time job. In fact, it seems like a never-ending job to uh, try to uh, maintain or even restore society's foundations. That's because the uh, woke equivalent of the Taliban has been chipping away at the foundations of Western civilization for some time. And, and I, I don't use that term Taliban exactly lightly. The, the tearing down of statues, the renaming of streets, the, the uh, denial of history, including the bad parts, the parts we should be learning from. That's, uh, that's kind of what the Taliban did. Everywhere they went, no, 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 there's absolute, you know, you must only believe this. You can only think this. You can only see these things, you know. Very uh, disturbing, narrow mindset. And everybody, you know, has to agree or else it's it's just, you know, not allowed. Well, it's, it's taken a toll. And I know that sometimes we feel the fatigue of, man, we're just trying to hang on to what's still good and right and decent. And I want to share with you an essay from Annie Holmquist. This is from her substack, Annie's Attic. Restoring society's foundations isn't a lost cause. We just need a few good tools and to know how to properly use them. She makes a lot of sense here. She says, were you to peer into my brain in recent months, you would find that a main thought running through it is our country's desperate need for restoration and repair. Not so much in the physical sense, but in the mental, emotional, and spiritual sense. A renewal of the foundations upon which basic life in this country has long been built. Now she's talking about things like family, faith, education. It's easy to look at the swampy mess that surrounds us and throw up our hands and bemoan with the psalmist. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? But Annie says the answer to that question is not a glum nothing. Just the opposite, really. We, the average folks who are just trying to live an upright life, 
can do a whole lot. She says, I thought about this while reading through the biblical account of Nehemiah. The, uh, she says, a historical figure living in the 5th century B.C., Nehemiah served as a Judean governor under the Persian king Artaxerxes I. Originally the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah returned to his homeland of Judah and found the walls of its main city, Jerusalem, in sad disarray, leaving the people there who lived there rather defenseless against their enemies. But Nehemiah didn't sit there and moan that all was lost. No, he rolled up his sleeves and encouraged the population to start repairing the city's ruined foundations. And they fell in line, too, even when the enemies threatened them, eventually restoring the walls in a record 52 days. Now, she says the story of Nehemiah and his cohorts rebuilding the foundations of their city in record time should give us hope that all is not lost for our own nation. We, too, can help restore the foundations of our society, especially if we take a few cues from Nehemiah's book. One of the fascinating things of, about Nehemiah's building project or rebuilding project is that he didn't rely on some big building firm. Instead, he went local, relying on the surrounding community to do the work. She says in the biblical account, we see individuals from all walks of life pitching in. The goldsmiths worked on one section. The apothecaries labored next to them. A city leader worked on a third portion. One of the city leaders involved in the building project was a man named Shalom. But he didn't work on his section alone. He pulled his daughters in and had them work alongside him, providing an on-the-job training session for them. Now, Annie Holmquist says, In our quest to rebuild our country's foundations, we often have the urge to go to the top. The politicians and the big-name influencers relying on national elections to start the restoration project. And these individuals can certainly be a help, but she says the real strength of a movement comes from those working at the local level strengthening, encouraging, and training those in our communities and families to be the ones who do the hard work of rebuilding. Before they can do the work, however, they must be equipped with the proper tools. So she talks a little bit about some of these tools, starting with a trowel. We don't know know exactly what Nehemiah's builders used to complete their work, but it's likely they used a tool such as a trowel to smooth the mortar while building the wall. Today our rebuilding tools vary, but two possibilities immediately come to mind. Good books from the past function as an antidote to the fluff and the continual flood of woke drivel we're we're subjected to in the media and elsewhere. If we're going to rebuild the foundations of our society, we need to be filling our minds with good, wholesome material and ideas and teaching our children to do the same. Now, just as an aside, I think this is one of the most important and one of the most overlooked things, and I'm so happy she pointed this out. Even watching a movie or watching a television show these days, or even commercials for that matter, does it not seem like one long, woke, unending lecture, right? I mean, everything is so politically correct. There's certainly a subliminal sermon being preached to us. So if you want to fill your mind with good stuff, you got to find the courage to hit that off switch and pick up a book. All right. Annie Holmquist also says the family is another tool that will rebuild society, and we should seek to do everything we can to encourage and strengthen our own families and other families around us. Planning or doing activities that keep the family together as a unit, rather than dividing it by age, is one way to do this. Another way is to encourage young adults to actually have families, not just small small families of one or two children, but rather than pushing them toward college and career until midlife when building a family is less of an option. She's got a good point. A lot of people put it off and then, well, I'm too tired to go out and throw the ball with my kid. Now, the list could continue, she says, but churches, homeschool groups, and community gatherings are some of the many other daily average things we can use as tools 
to change people's hearts and minds and rebuild the foundations of our society. She also talks about a sword. Unfortunately for Nehemiah's crew, rebuilding didn't go as smoothly as they hoped. It wasn't long before their enemies recognized their rapid progress on the wall and began threatening them with violence. As a result, his laborers strapped their swords on while they worked, ready at a moment's notice to defend against attack. Those of us seeking to rebuild society's foundations won't be without attack either. As such, we need to be equipped with good weapons of warfare, such as a thorough knowledge of the truth we're standing for, and the logic and debate skills to defend that truth. Training our children in these same skills will pass the weapons of warfare successfully down to the next generation. But these weapons are not to be used continually. Just as Nehemiah and his cohorts were cohorts rather were prepared to defend, well, but continued rebuilding while they waited for the attack, so we must not allow our weapons of warfare to distract us from the real work. In other words, getting continually caught up in arguments or Twitter debates may show off our skills, but continually engaging in them often serves to drive others away from the real message of rebuilding and restoration that we want to convey. Knowing how to use our tools and when to use them is the key. And there's one forgotten tool. She says the sword and the trowel used in the local community were the main components Nehemiah's builders used in their restoration work. But she says, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention the one other ingredient that gave Nehemiah success, and that's God. Nehemiah was prepared for the battle and equipped his workers with the tools they needed to finish the job, yet his little band was still weak against the enemy. Instead of growing disheartened at the giants they were facing, Nehemiah relied on God, telling his people, our God shall fight for us. Now, Annie Holmquist says the same is true for us. We like to think we can rebuild and restore and repair the foundations on our own, but we can't. The disrepair is far greater than we could ever fix in our own strength. She says we must rely on the Lord to give us the wisdom, insight, and strength to fight the battle for truth and right. And she says if we seek him and his guidance, he will not fail to deliver. Amen. I'm, I'm with her on this. Not just because, hey, that sounds like a good idea, but because I've witnessed it personally, firsthand. I'm sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get just a, just a tiny bit uh, uh, spiritual on you here, but uh, I think it's, it's remarkable and I think it's an often overlooked fact that uh, liberty, I mean the real deal, liberty, is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. And I don't presume to speak for God, but he is, he's very pro-freedom. He loves people who can live as free people. Now, unfortunately, that's not something that everybody can do. Why? Well, because your ability to live freely and to, to enjoy the blessings of freedom and the blessings of liberty, as our uh, you know, founding fathers called it, depend upon your ability to govern yourself. Which, you know, that you think about, uh, well, yeah, it sounds a lot like the stuff they talked about in Sunday school back when I was a kid. Yep, yep, there's a connection there. Self-governing people don't need to be governed from without. And in my experience, the people who really have put their trust in God and, you know, who, who wish to, to be on God's side are people who find the strength to govern themselves in big things as well as in small things. Sorry if that sounded more like, a, you know, oh, well, he's preaching a sermon at us here. But I think this is a very overlooked truth, and I think Annie Holmquist is absolutely on target when she talks about restoring society's foundations. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention lifesavingfood.com. I mention this uh, every show, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just trying to beat you into submission, but food storage and preparedness for uncertain times is really a necessity if you want to have peace of mind. I'm not saying it's going to shelter you from every bad thing that could possibly happen, but man, you have options. And when you have options, suddenly it's less of an ordeal and it's more of an adventure. And there is a certain kind of peace of mind and a certain satisfaction that comes from being able to meet you know, unexpected crises that arise, knowing that, okay, we can handle this. That may not mean that you skate through unscathed, but to know that you aren't dependent on either the kindness of strangers or worse, the, uh, you know, benevolence of whoever is ruling over your particular uh, geographic area, that's a pretty powerful thing. Probably the strongest argument I can think of for self-sufficiency. So check it out, lifesavingfood.com. You know, so much of what's driving conflict in our society today just comes down to people who are intent on obtaining legal power over others. Yes, I guess I could say political power, but they want the right legally to tell you this is what you have to do. Now, Ken McManigal says expect pushback because legislating others to do or legislating others into slavery is not only morally wrong, but it's also dangerous. I like how he puts this. He says, one thing that people seem to have a hard time learning or remembering is that if you push someone too hard or too far, you shouldn't be surprised when they push back because they will. He says, look at the current political situation. It's all pushback from every side against whoever pushed them too much. Those who feel they've had their rights or their freedom limited are pushing back in political ways. If you treat some people as less than, don't be surprised when they fight back. Whether their feelings on the matter are justified or not, they'll use their victimhood to gain political power and then use that power against you because of what you've done to them in the past. But if they go too far with their pushback, they shouldn't be surprised when they get pushed back yet again. It's not a pendulum. It's actively being shoved from side to side. Left status Twitter users are angry that Twitter has started fact-checking them now, along with their opposition. But they were perfectly fine with Twitter actively censoring anyone who wasn't a left statist under the old management. In fact, they denied it was even happening and laughed at anyone who said it was. Well, the situation has changed. They thought they were special and above accountability. They don't like it at all when the shoes are on both feet. What they call the promotion of hate speech, no such thing, white supremacy, and the Republican Party is simply a slight shift, is is simply a slight shift back to the middle. They are so far left status that even slowing the plunge toward their side looks to them like a hard turn to the other side. He says this red queen has to run as fast as she can toward the left to stay in the ever-moving center. And he says enough is enough. Unhitch from them, let them run into the ocean and drown. There's no appeasing them. There's not even any reason to push them. They'll do it to themselves. Just wait them out. Now, he says, if Musk ever does end up pushing them too hard, for real, not in their fevered hallucinations, they will push back, justifiably so. And hopefully, as long as they're only imagining a push, they won't be able to do any lasting damage. But, he says, hallucinations are powerful in those without a foundation of worthwhile principles, so I wouldn't say they have no chance. 
If only people would stop trying to govern everyone else. It's okay to share the world with people who have different values. And he says, and I'm speaking to all sides here. What's not okay is trying to legislate other people into slavery that you imagine would be good for you. If you do this, he says, expect pushback. You probably won't enjoy it. That's blunt, but it's right on the money, too. Uh, there was something he said, too. i got to see if I can find this quote, just because it was, it was so on target. You know, anytime you, you push back, you can be expected to be accused of hate. And uh, let's see, here it is. He says, I don't, this is Kent McManagle. He says, I don't hate anyone, but if you try to force me to do something I think is wrong or stop me from doing something that isn't wrong, I may react in such a way that you mistake it for hatred. Does that not sound like what we're facing right now? What? You're not chanting in unison with us? Why, you must be filled with hate. You're just looking for an excuse to discriminate. Or it could be something even more simple. I just am saying, no, I'm not going to go along with you. Reeb comes the scream. You know, it's, I know it's exhausting. And it seems like it's never ending. But I think the most important lesson here is no matter how hard other people are pushing you, that doesn't mean you have to push them back. I like the idea that he says of, you know, just uh, step aside. Let them let them run into the ocean and drown. Unhitch from them. Enough is enough. Kind of reminds me of uh, Etienne de la Boite, who talked about how if you want to you want to take uh, yourself out from under the power of a tyrant, he says pitchforks and torches, that's not really the way to go. Instead, just withdraw your consent. And without the support of people, you know, gathered around it and and consenting, even the Colossus would just simply topple and fall over. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be super easy. You will be criticized and you'll be, you know, called on the carpet and probably punished. Someone will want to cancel you. But I guess the point is it works. And the best part is you don't have to become what you're fighting. And when I think about people who've become what ostensibly they're fighting, I think Antifa is probably the best example of this. You want to see what fascism looks like? Just look at the people who are calling themselves anti-fascist and look how they behave. And there's a, that's a very good indication of that's exactly how fascists behave. I don't know. Maybe it's psychological projection or maybe it's a, you know deliberate misdirection. But the most fascistic behavior, you will march with us, you will chant with us, you will not, di- di- you will not dissent in any way, shape, or form. That definitely sounds fascist to me. And they're the ones I see using violence to, you know, implement their particular school of thought. All right, one final story I want to share with you. The climate change religion, of course, is a key component of the mechanism for absolute control by the global elite. Got a great article here from Spiked Online from Brendan O'Neill. Are we finally reaching peak climate hysteria? He says the eco-derangement of the elites is a threat to reason, freedom, and jobs. He says, the madness of the Greens is peaking. This week, a leading eco-politician in the UK, Caroline Lucas of the Green Party, referred to the building of a new coal mine as a crime against humanity. Take that in. Once upon a time, it was mass murder, extermination, enslavement, and the forced deportation of a people that were considered crimes against humanity. Now the building of a mine in Cumbria in northwest England that will create 500 new jobs and produce 2.8 million tons of coal a year 
is referred to in such terms. He says perhaps the coal mine bosses should be packed off to The Hague. Maybe the men who will dig the coal should be forced alongside the likes of ISIS to account for their genocidal behavior. Now, Brendan O'Neill says, we can't let Ms. Lucas's crazed comments just slide by. We need to reflect on how we arrived at a situation where a mainstream politician, one feted by the media establishment, can liken digging for coal to crimes of extermination. Now, it was in The Guardian, where else, that Ms. Lucas made her feverish claims. On Wednesday, when the government gave the go-ahead to the Cumbria mine, the first new coal mine in Britain for 30 years, Lucas wrote that the whole thing is truly terrible. This climate-busting, backward-looking coal mine is nothing short of a climate crime against humanity, she said. Isn't it, though? It isn't, though, is it, he says. Sorry to be pedantic, but it's not a crime to extract coal from the earth. If it were, the leaders of China, where they produce 13 million tons of coal a day, rather than putting into per, rather putting into perspective the Cumbria mines 2.8 million tons a year, would be languishing in the clink, right? He says, I, feel for, I look forward to Ms. Lucas performing a citizen's arrest on Xi Jinping. Certainly it's not a crime against humanity. That term entered popular usage during the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis. It refers to an act of evil of such enormity that it can be seen as an assault on all of humankind. Earth to Ms. Lucas, extracting coal to make steel, what the Cumbria coal will mostly be used for, is not an affront to humankind. He says, I'll tell you what is an affront, though. Speaking about the burning of coal in the same language that's used to refer to the burning of human beings, that, Caroline, is despicable. Brandon O'Neill says the overwrought apocalyptic apocalypticism apocalypticism there we go of the likes of Ms. Lucas does two bad things. First, it demonizes in the most hysterical fashion perfectly normal and in fact good endeavors. The Cumbria coal mine will create hundreds of well-paid jobs. It'll increase the independence and dignity of working-class families in Cumbria. It will help to reduce the UK's reliance on coal imports. Those are positives. Those should be celebrated. Of course, to Ms. Lucas and the other middle-class greens, the local communities in Cumbria have welcomed the coal mine, and it only shows they're nostalgic for the past and seduced by a plan that will actually make them suffer. This is how she puts it. Uh, patronizing much? He says, actually, the Cumbrian working classes who can't wait to start mining are a paragon of reason in comparison with the Guardianistas madly sobbing about coal being a crime against humanity. I've heard some pretty hysterical stuff, you know, starting at about the level of how dare you. But I have to say, for uh, for that particular member of the Green Party, that's wild. This is The Brian Hyde Show.